I'm going to ask you to remain standing as I read the word of God for you today. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now you may be seated. Well, good morning to you, my friends, and welcome to Disciples Church. Uh, my name is Dave Hahn. I'm grateful that you have joined us in worship this morning. I am not only the privileged one who got to read the passage uh, of, of Scripture today for you, but I also get to open God's Word for you and be able to preach it today as well. It's great, my great privilege to be able to do so. For as long as I can remember, I have always believed that God exists and that Jesus Christ is His Son who came to die on a cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. As a baby in the Greek Orthodox tradition, I was baptized, christened, and confirmed all in one celebration. I then served in a Lutheran church as an acolyte while I was in middle school. I have all along tried my very best to try to live a good life, having been to church countless times, and even when my church attendance began to wane in my college years, I would always at least show up on Christmas and Easter. By the measure of most, based on the criteria that I just laid before you, I have always been a Christian. So imagine my surprise when one day, in the fall of 1998, I could not honestly answer yes to the following question. And the question was, do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know that you have eternal life? Sheila, my wife and I were dating at the time and we had begun attending a different church together. It was a new church for both of us and they were in the middle of a sermon series on 1 John just as we have been over the past several weeks. And the Bible passages for that particular day came from 1 John chapters 4 and 5 which included our verse for today, 1 John 5.13. And when the pastor asked the congregation, do you know? Are you confident? I remember thinking, my honest answer to those questions were, I don't know. I, th I think so? I don't know. I, I think so. At the time, it if I'm honest, it didn't make much sense that someone with my church background who claimed to believe what I believed and had done what I had done would be so uncertain in his answer to such a vital question. And what I came to understand is that my uncertainty, perhaps like many others, maybe even some of you, came from a place of not being sure that I did more good things than bad things? Have I done enough good to gain eternal life was the question that was rolling around in my mind, and I wasn't entirely sure that I had. I mean, how much good is enough? How much good is enough? And how much bad is too much? I mean, isn't that 
how most of us think about our eternal destination? So after about 40 minutes, I was again asked that same question at the end of the message. But this time, my answer to the question, do you know that you have eternal life, changed from, I think so, to, oh yes, I know. Oh yes, I know. And my life was forever changed. Was I a Christian before that day? Maybe. Perhaps I'll find out for sure in heaven, but I can tell you this. I know I'm a Christian now. And to live this life confident of who you are and where you're going and who you will be with in this life and the next is invaluable. It is invaluable in that it steals away the fear of death and gives joy that this world cannot give. Because you know that even if the worst were to happen, the best is yet to come. You see, for the Christian to live as Christ and to die as gain, whatever, either way, I'm fine. So let me ask you then, as we begin today, do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know it? And if you don't know, would you like to? Because God, through John the Apostle, says that we can know it. So we will spend most of our time today looking at chapter 5, verse 13, but we will also look at a few verses that we have explored already from this same letter because they are connected to today's verse. So in 1 John, there are several purpose statements for the church. That's who this letter was written to. Several purpose statements. And in the first chapter of this epistle, John says that he has written to make their and our joy complete. He has written to make their joy and our joy complete. In chapter 2, John says that he has written, so that they and we may not sin, and because they and we know the truth. In chapter 3, John said that he wrote to warn the believers about those who are trying to deceive them and those who may be trying to deceive us. And then here in chapter 5, John says that he has written that they and we may know that they and we have eternal life. At least four different purpose statements John lays out throughout 1 John. Now, 1 John is sometimes called the epistle of assurance. The epistle of assurance which is really fascinating because for many who claim to believe the gospel, 1 John oftentimes brings very little assurance. I mean, it is not unusual, so if you find yourself in this place, it is not unusual to read this letter and think, uh-oh, uh-oh, I don't, I don't know that I quite measure up. I've read 1 John that way. It is 
absolutely where I was on that day in the fall of 1998. That's why I was like, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But, but, that is not what God nor John, his apostle, had in mind in writing this letter. Instead, we can be confident that John wanted his readers and you and I to know and to have assurance in our faith. John wanted his readers to have assurance in their faith and to know what God, by his Spirit, intended them to know. Remember, my friends, John was writing to a church that was beginning to doubt their salvation and whether or not they truly knew God. And the reason for their doubt had everything to do with false teachers, namely Gnostics, who had filled their hearts and minds with lies and a false gospel. So, to the degree that their assurance of their salvation or understanding of the gospel had left them, John was seeking to reestablish the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ, and the salvation that is found in him alone. And he wanted the believers in Asia Minor, who he was writing to, to know once again what they had forgotten or what they had began to doubt. To illustrate this point, it is worth noting, and it is interesting to realize, that in this first epistle, John uses the word know, or a variation of that word, no less than 38 times. 38 times throughout five chapters, John uses the word know, or some variation thereof. And while the Bible leaves plenty of room for those who wrestle with doubt, it is not God's desire that we would permanently live there. The Bible leaves room for doubt, but it is not God's desire that that is a place we would live. Rather, God intends for us to be confident and assured of who he is, of what he has done, and who we are because of him. He wants us to be confident and assured of those things. But where does this confidence come from? Last week, we read from Romans 8, which says in verse 16 of that chapter, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Meaning, it is the Holy Spirit who testifies to our spirits that we know God and we belong to him. But the apostles knew and we all know that there is such a thing as self-deception. The apostles knew that and we all know that. There's such a thing as self-deception. So we recognize that it is important to know that we know. Fortunately, each of John's 38 uses of the word know provides us with external observable indicators to affirm or to challenge our spirit's conviction. 
our spirit's conviction as to whether or not we truly know God and have life in him. Each one of those knows provides an external observable indicator. So before we explore our verse for today, let's look at two of those aforementioned indicators from a section of scripture found in chapter four of 1 John. Go ahead and keep 1 John 5 bookmarked. I will read it for us, but we're gonna be looking at John 4, 12 through 16. Beginning in verse 12. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Within just these few verses, we are given at least two measurements or tests to help make us confident that we know God and have eternal life in him. And the first measurement is found in verse 15. Verse 15 again reads, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So for those who confess Jesus Christ as God's only begotten Son, they can be sure that God is in them and they are in him. Did you hear? For those who confess Jesus Christ as God's only begotten Son, they can be sure that God is in them and they are in him. Now, it is crucial, it is critical to understand here what John means by using the word confesses in verse 15 and what he means by using the word believe from our passage today. What does it mean to confess? What does it mean to believe? The word confess or believe is not relegated to intellectual assent as many may define it. It is not at all like believing that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. It's not like that. Nor is confession and belief exclusively an agreement with a particular set of beliefs or propositions as though the primary goal of Christianity is to lay before you some kind of history lesson or to give you a collection of rules to follow and obey. Instead, confession of and belief in Christ presumes a change of the mind, of the heart, and the will. Confession of and belief in Christ presumes a change of the mind and of the heart and of the will through a personal relationship with Christ, which comes by faith. In fact, that is exactly what the Bible means when it uses the word name as we see it used here in chapter 5, verse 13, right? I write these things to you who believe in the name 
of the Son of God. What, that I believe that his name was Jesus? No. You see, the word, the word name in Scripture often refers to the essence of a person. It refers to the essence of a person and all that they are marked and known by. That's what makes Jesus' personal name so important. Do you remember that when the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was to give her son the name Jesus? Do you remember? The angel appears before Mary and says, you are to give him the name Jesus. A name that means the Lord is salvation in Hebrew. That's how Jesus is translated in Hebrew. The Lord is salvation. But then the angel followed his instruction with the reason for that name. He said, for he will save his people from their sins. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So, to confess or believe in Jesus is to give yourself over to all that he is and everything that he has said of himself, including that he is God and that no one comes to the Father but through him, that he alone can forgive sins and give eternal life, that he is the light of the world, that he is the truth of the world, and that he will come again on the clouds to gather his own and to judge the world. That is the essence of who Christ is and all that he is known and marked by. Now, there are many who claim to believe in Jesus or confess that he is the Son of God, even those who would identify as Christians. But a deeper look into what they actually believe, if you were to ask further questions, or a deeper look into what it is that they confess of Jesus, along with a deeper look into the lives that they live, demonstrates that the Jesus they claim to follow is ultimately a Jesus of their own making. A Jesus of their own making, not revealed in Scripture. And as such, their lives are no different because of him. My friends, God is self-revelatory. He is self-revelatory. And what I mean by that is he has shown himself as he truly is and no one else can say otherwise. And simply put, without his self-revelation, without his choosing to reveal himself as he is to you and I, no one would or could know him. We could not and would not know him apart from his self-revelation. So my friends, be warned. It is possible to love some kind of caricature of Jesus rather than Jesus himself as he has revealed himself. It is possible to love a Christ who is a good man or a great moral teacher rather than the Christ who came from heaven to earth fully man and fully God. Disciples Church, what we know of Christ 
and what we confess of Christ and what we believe about Christ must harmonize with what is revealed to us in Scripture and by his Holy Spirit. So, if you claim to know Jesus and believe in Jesus and confess Jesus as the Son of God and as your Lord and Savior, is it the Word of God and the Spirit of God that has revealed him to you and caused you to believe? Is the reason you believe because the Word of God and the Spirit of God has revealed him to you? And if so, If that is why you believe, and if that is why you confess, John says you can be confident that you have eternal life. That's our first measurement. Our second measurement, apart from whether or not you confess Christ, is found in verse 12 of chapter 4. Again, reading, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So, Scripture makes clear that those who were once enemies of God but are now sons of God, those who were once dead in sin but are now alive in Christ, those who once had hearts of stone but now have been given hearts of flesh will live differently because God's life is in them. If you were once an enemy of God, dead in sin, with a heart of stone, but you are now a son of God, alive in Christ, and have been given a heart of flesh, you will live differently because the life of God is now in you. And verse 12 tells us that the greatest evidence of the life of God being in someone is love. The greatest evidence of the life of God being in someone is love. Love for God and love for others. Not that that love is perfectly seen, but that it is progressively seen. Not perfectly seen, but progressively seen. With an increasing recognition of our failures and our sinfulness, and with a growing desire for and a demonstration of God's love and sanctifying righteous work in us. And what I mean by all of that is that Christians are incrementally and observably, incrementally and observably becoming who God says we already are in Christ. It's incremental but it's observable. The great pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul said the following about this idea, which I just thought was wonderful. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I want to be able to read it for you. R.C. Sproul said, it is not possible for an unregenerate person to have any true affection for Christ or his church. Affection for Christ is a result of the Spirit's work. God, the Holy Spirit, changes the disposition of our souls and the inclination of our hearts. Before regeneration, we are cold, hostile, or indifferent to the things of God, having no honest affection for him because we are in the flesh, and the flesh does not love the things of God. Love for God 
is kindled by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts. So, if a person can answer yes when asked whether he has an affection for Christ, even though he may not love Jesus as much as he ought to, that answer can assure us that the Spirit has done a transforming work in his soul. Disciples Church, it is impossible to confess or believe as we talked about what those words mean in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And it is impossible to love God and to love his church without God by his Spirit having begun a transforming and regenerating work in us. It's not possible. So today, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and there is evidence of your affections and your life being different because of your relationship with him, you can be assured that eternal life is yours in Christ. Verse 13 again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you notice that word choice at the back end of that verse? It is so important. Pay particular attention to the fact that John does not say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may hope that you get eternal life. That you may hope that you get it. He doesn't say that. What does he say? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life, my friends, is something believers have now and they know it. And what makes eternal life so incredible is not that this life goes on forever because it does not and it will not. Instead, eternal life is so incredible because the life of the only eternal one resides in us both now and forever. The life of the only eternal one resides in us now and forever. It is a whole new life in us. It is God's life in us. And that new life began the hour we first believed. Redeeming our yesterdays, ushering us in to endless tomorrows, and listen, empowering us to live the Christ life today. Empowering us to live the Christ life today. My friends, I, I think there was one big reason that I was not confident in whether or not I had eternal life. Even though I would have told you that I believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that there was evidence of his love in and through me. The reason I answered, I think so, I'm not sure, I think so, to that question that was asked of me, do you know 
The reason that I answered that way was because I had a pronoun problem. I had a pronoun problem. Here's what I mean. If I would have been asked to stand before God on any given day in those first 27-ish years of my life, and God were to have asked me, why should I let you into heaven? My answers likely would have started with the pronoun I. I was baptized, christened, and confirmed. I went to church most of my life. I was an acolyte as a kid. I've done some pretty good things, and I've tried not to do many bad things. Maybe even I would have said, well, because I believe in Jesus. But when that message on 1 John years ago ended, the reason that I could confidently say, yes, I know I have eternal life was because for the first time in my life, I realized that faith and eternal life and the assurance of both does not come from I or me. Rather, it comes from he and from him. It comes from he and from him. The reason that I had no assurance and no peace in my salvation was because, like many of us, I thought it depended on me. And I had not come to rest, to really rest in the finished work of Christ and his promise to finish what he began in me. So, when it comes to knowing God and being assured of eternal life in and with him, what pronouns are you using? What pronouns are you using? You don't get to answer that now because I know what you're going to say back to me, but what pronouns have you been using? Are you depending on you and your ability to get things right? That you did a, a little bit more good than you did bad, whatever that means? Or are you wholly and completely and fully dependent upon him? My friends, the, the Christ life is all about Christ's work on our behalf despite us. Despite us. He first loved us. He first forgave us. And he imparted life to us without us asking. And he didn't do it because we deserved it, had earned it, or had asked for it, but because in his love and grace, he chose to be compassionate and merciful to us, knowing that what you and I needed most was something that we would never be able to provide for ourselves. And my friends, if we did nothing to deserve it, earn it or gain it, does it not stand to reason that there is nothing we can do to lose it? So as, as we close, let me bring up one last point. And this may resonate with some of you. It is possible to be a Christian without having full assurance. It is possible to be a Christian without having full assurance. A lack of assurance does not necessarily mean a lack of faith in Christ. As Charles Spurgeon wisely said it, full assurance 
is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to satisfaction. Full assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to satisfaction. So to the degree that you do not have assurance and it bothers you, it bothers you that you're not sure if you confess and believe in Jesus Christ alone as your salvation, or it bothers you that you're not sure if your life is in fact being incrementally and observably made different through your relationship with him, even in that lack of assurance, I am asking you to see the grace of God on you. I'm asking you to see the grace of God on you. What do you mean? Well, because those who do not belong to Christ do not worry or care about such things. The fact that you're worried about it and that it bothers you, that's evidence of God's grace on you. Non-believers, those who do not know love or have any affection for Christ, do not worry or concern themselves with any of those things. They don't care. And God in his grace is letting you know, if you find yourself in that place, he's letting you know through your lack of assurance and through your concern that things in your life are maybe not as they should be. Things in your life are maybe not as they should be. Maybe it's an issue of the heart, maybe it's an issue of the head, or maybe it is a salvation thing. But his intent in revealing that to you is not to beat you down and it's not to make you feel bad. Instead, it is to turn you towards him. It is to let you know that he is wanting to transform you and give you assurance in him. So let me encourage you, if you find yourself feeling that way, to receive with gladness God's pressing on you in such a way. If you're unassured, see it as God's grace on you, pressing into you, seeking to transform and to give you that assurance. And then would you dare ask him to make you moldable in his hands as he works to complete what he has begun? God, make me moldable. Do in me, in whatever way you decide, what needs doing. Disciples Church, we believe in the name of the Son of God, and we know that we have eternal life only because he came, he died, and he rose again. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He gave us the faith that we needed to believe in him. He sent us his spirit to live in us and seal us until the day of redemption. And he took all of our bad and gave us in return all his good. Do you believe it? And is your life being transformed because of it? If it is, then rest in the glorious assurance that you are his. But if you have not yet believed and you are not at rest, would you enter into it by faith right here and right now? Let today be the day of salvation and of assurance. My friend is 
It is no accident that you are here today. It is no accident that you have heard the gospel today. God is pursuing you. He is chasing after you in love. Do not run. Jesus' final words in Scripture are to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. They are sober, urgent words for those who do not believe, or at least they should be. And at the same time, they are thrilling words for those who do believe. Jesus says in Revelation 22:20, 20, Surely I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. My friends, in view of eternity, Jesus is nearly here. Jesus is nearly here, and he is ready to gather and take home those who belong to him. So Disciples Church, let us, let us then spend our life here on earth abiding in the life of God that has been given to us, the new life we have in God that has been given to us, and let us also rest in great hope and great certainty that we are and we will be ready when he does come again. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, some of us, um, I recognize, come before you in prayer this morning, confessing with great assurance that Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, has saved us, transformed us, and will continue that work until he brings us home. And for that and for more, and all, all the more, we thank and praise you today. And Lord, some of us would love to confess those same truths with such assurance, but at least to this point, we cannot and we have not. Father, just as you did with me and so many others many years ago, would you please hear the cries and concerns of those who live with a certain degree of uncertainty regarding their relationship with you, their life in you, and then give them assurance that is rooted in Christ's sufficient and finished work on their behalf. Lord God, it, it may also be that there are those within the sound of my voice who have little to no desire to believe in, follow, or know Christ and his resurrected life in them. Father, would you free them from unbelief and from sin and from death? Would you give them faith to believe, convicting them of sin and convincing them of the righteousness of God that can be theirs by grace and through faith? Just as you revealed Christ to we who believe and gave us the assurance of our salvation, would you do the same work in them here and now? Help them, God. Humble them and make them a new creation in Christ who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. In Jesus' powerful and precious name we ask and we pray. Amen.